0: Welcome to History of the Sports Bra. Hello, my name is Sophie. And I'm Julia. And this is History of the Sports Bra. Welcome to our uh, second episode. This time we're taking, taking a deeper dive into the history of women's soccer.
1: Yeah, welcome to Kicking Grass and Taking Names with the History yes. of Women's Soccer.
0: Woo. So before we get really deep into the history of women's soccer, we want to talk about the current state of women's soccer because there's been a lot of stuff going on right now with the U.S. Women's National Team. Julia is our resident expert on the battle for equal pay between the U.S. Women's National Team and the U.S. Soccer Federation. So I'm going to let her take it away.
1: Yeah, so so expert, very loose term. Um, I'm just trying to keep <laughs> up as as best as possible with this whole thing. But yeah, so two, two things that we want to kind of highlight. One, back in early March, um, before this COVID-19 pandemic occurred during their last soccer game, They, the U.S. Women's National Team wore their jersey inside out during warm-ups as a form of protest. And I just want to highlight the reason why they did that. So they have filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation, and it came out that in U.S. Soccer Federation's defense, they said that men's soccer requires more skill than women's soccer, which is just a bunch of baloney i don't want to start using expletives about that so that was their like one thing of protest and then they knew the pending decision was coming up in may 1st so kind of more about the lawsuit against the u.s soccer federation so the u.s soccer federation controls both the men's and women's national teams the two soccer leagues of so mls and the nwsl and then also youth development in within the united states just in general and so they filed this lawsuit on the basis that the women get paid less for equal work, they deny them equal mm-hmm. playing, training and travel conditions in general, promotion of the game, they lack that among other things. So this passed on May 1st, the judge dismissed the pay aspect of it on the grounds that the women actually got paid more from 2015 to 2020, which are the years in contention, I guess, than the men. Mm-hmm. And that the women got paid what they earned through their collective bargaining agreement, which a CBA is basically a contract that the players make with their organizations. And every sports league has one. And there are two major issues with this viewpoint and this dismissal. So one, over that span from 2015 to 2020, the women have won two World Cups, which is highly impressive they yeah a little claps (laughs) they rarely lost and they also played a ton more games whereas the men have failed to make the world cup in the only year that was which is 2016 so overall obviously the women have played more and so they have gotten paid more which is one Mm -hmm. of the issues and then the second issue is that the cba that the women accepted was based on pay like regardless of play so that they would have Mm -hmm. a steady check to have that security than pay when you play, which is pay based off of how you do and things like that of nature. Mm -hmm. And the CBA that the men have agreed to recently, that was never even on the table for the women's team. So that's why they're trying to like retroactively get this pay when they filed this lawsuit. So Mm -hmm. obviously the women are getting paid more because they are historically good, whereas the men are historically bad. And overall, it was very disappointing because they did deny it, but they will appeal it. And they are also mm-hmm. able to go to court regarding the other perks like travel, charter flights, hotels, um, among others, medical facilities mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it's overall really frustrating, but the yeah. fight is still on. So, And for those of people who are thinking, well, the women don't generate as much revenue in soccer, that's actually false because winning the World Cup, FIFA, which is like the international soccer organization, Mm -hmm. pays the U.S. Soccer Federation when the women win the World Cup. So not even making the World Cup, they don't get anything from FIFA. So that's another consideration as well.
0: The argument that women's sports don't make money is out the window. Like People are paying to support the teams and people are buying apparel.
1: Yeah, and and on top of that too, I know like ticket revenue for at least mm. the Chicago Red Stars have gone up 50% in the past year, which is a crazy number. Like I think the numbers typically around like 5% for a normal mm. like an NBA season, for example. So,
0: mm-hmm. um
1: people are definitely rallying around it and it, it's this new wave coming of of support for women in in soccer, yeah. and women in sports in general. So,
0: yeah. So while the current state of women's soccer isn't where we would want it to be right now, thanks to the U.S. Soccer Federation, we're still fighting. But women's soccer in the United States has an incredibly rich history and an incredibly winning history. Like, we have been good at soccer for so long. I don't know i feel like women's soccer in the u.s is like a very american thing everybody i knew played when they were little mm-hmm. we all played soccer and it's definitely like the mm-hmm. women's game especially
1: just growing so much with the youth as well
0: exactly so diving right in early days of soccer apparently the first women's team the first formal women's soccer team was founded in 1970 oh my gosh 1917 <laughs> <laughs> and it was named the Dick Kerr Ladies Team. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like
1: they had they just had to use a I get it that's a nickname for Richard. I don't understand
0: why. Yeah. So this poorly named team lasted for 50 years, which is pretty crazy. And unfortunately, four years after this team was formed in 1921, the English Football Association actually banned all female competitions in Britain because they were scared that the success of a, of the women's teams were going to be a threat to the men.
1: That's just a general history, I feel like, lesson. I mean, it's like another mm-hmm. example of how equality scares, I guess, mankind sometimes, and it doesn't make any yes. sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so then in 1951, so 30 years after the British made that foolhardy call, Uh, the first organized league for women was established in St. Louis. Who would have thought? (laughs) But it really wasn't until soccer was able to penetrate at the collegiate level that it took off for women in the United States. And so one thing that we didn't really actually talk about in our last episode that I think is really important, especially in the context of soccer, is the establishment of Title IX in 1972. So... Title IX is only 37 words, but it has had rippling effects for women in the United States. And so Title IX, I will read it verbatim because it's only 37 words, stated that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program Or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Sounds like a lot of legal jargon, but what it really comes down to is that for women's sports, any school that received federal funds, so any college, had to provide equitable opportunities for women and men to participate in sports. The way this plays out, it doesn't require schools to offer identical sports, but rather an equal opportunity to play. So this is why a lot of schools, if they have a football team, they have to have some other women's team to counteract it. It doesn't mean that they have to have women's football. right? Basically, before 1971, only 1% of college athletic budgets went to women's sports programs. And in high school, male athletes outnumbered female athletes 12.5 to 1. So we got some bad stats. Mm -hmm. But then, Title IX gets passed, and female participation at high school sports has grown by 1,057% and 614% at the college level. Those are, like, not even real numbers.
1: No. I mean, you can just think of that as, like, an exponential increase over the past, what, 50 years or whatever it is, essentially.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Title IX kicked off modern women's sports in the U.S. as we know it. So there we go. We got Title IX. Now we have women's soccer in colleges. So in 1981, there are about 100 varsity teams in the NCAA. And in 1982, the NCAA sponsored the first ever women's soccer tournament. Within 15 years of it being established in the NCAA, women's soccer far exceeded the number of men's soccer teams. Let it sink in that men's soccer, which had been a college varsity sport since, like, I don't know, the early 20th century, was overtaken in 15 years by women's college soccer.
1: It's crazy to think that that many people went through high school, too, given this opportunity and was like, I'm going to go all in. On soccer, you know, like that many women took the opportunity. So it's great to see people taking advantage of something that, you know, has been
0: given to them. And take advantage did we do. In (laughs) in 1985, the U.S. Women's National Team was born. Slight bad move on our part. We were one of the last nations to create a national team. So we really dropped the ball there. Typical of the United States. But then, the first Women's World Cup was held in 1991, and who do you think won it?
1: The United States of America.
0: You know, if it's a question about who won in women's soccer, a good guess is always a great guess.
1: Always a great guess. (laughs) Trivia,
0: always the good guess. So we won literally the first Women's World Cup, beat Norway two to one. But it didn't really generate the excitement that the players were hoping when they returned to the U.S.
1: A little plug. So Fox Sports, they've been playing on Fox Sports 1, Fox Sports 2, online, and on YouTube. They've been doing a World Cup rewind. And T-God, they've been playing a lot of women's soccer games. So if you want to go watch any of these classics, please feel free to tune in at Fox Sports or YouTube. Just search it will be there and it'll get you fired up like you're watching a live event, which we can't right now.
0: Yeah. Also, I think you should outline the basics of World Cup soccer. Yeah, Yeah,
1: because the formatting a little bit wonky, you know. So just the general World Cup, for those of you who don't know the formatting of it, basically there are group stages and then there's the knockout stage. So the group stage historically has been four groups of four teams each, so 16 total. And within each group, they all play each other. So you'll play three soccer matches. Depending on how those work out, depending on the wins, you get three points if you win. You get zero points if you lose. You get one point if you tie. And then also the goal score, like the goal differential. So winning six to zero is better than winning two to one, for example they get ranked. And then the top two within each group will go on to that knockout round. So starting in the quarterfinals with eight teams left. And then from there on out, it's single elimination until the finals. But then also the the two losers from the semifinals will go and play each other for third and fourth place. So that's how it works. I'm pretty sure it's very similar for the Olympic game as Mm -hmm. well. And Each game is 90 minutes. They have a break at 45 minutes, and there's always a little bit of extra time added on to each half. So that depends on how slow the pace of play is and if there are any injuries. So it could be anywhere from usually just like two to five minutes, depending. If the teams are tied going into the 90th minute after regular time, it'll go to OT, which is one 30-minute little, I don't know, extra on time, but it's not golden goal, meaning that if Someone scores, the other team does have an opportunity to uh, level it up before Mm -hmm. the end. And then if that's still tied, that's when you go to PKs.
0: Will you just explain the deal with the five penalty kicks, and then it's the sudden death penalty kicks?
1: So going back and forth, each team has an opportunity to score. They send up one striker against the goalie. If you all make each five kicks, then it goes into the sudden death that you were talking about. But Mm -hmm. if one person misses it on the other team and you yourself make all five goals, then that is when you have won the game. So there's a little hiccup. So it's really, I mean, watching it on television, when you're watching PKs on television (laughs) is like the most heart-wrenching thing because every single PK counts and you know it and you're just Mm -hmm. hoping that they'll either miss, your goalie will stop it, and then you have to make sure that you yourself, you know, your team, makes a PK and i, I almost mm-hmm. shit my pants every single time i watch it
0: so then we have the 95 world cup we lose in the semis to norway our old rivals that we had beaten we finished third overall but that wasn't the end of women's soccer because right around the corner we have the 1996 olympics and guess what gets added to the olympic slate Woo, women's soccer. So on August 1st, 1996, in Athens, Georgia, in front of a record breaking audience of 76,481 fans at UGA's Sanford Stadium, the U.S. women's national team defeated China two to one and won the gold medal. This was a classic story when it comes to women's sports, in that there was little to no media coverage of the event at all. NBC, which I'm sure we all know, NBC is the Olympic channel, did not provide any coverage at all. And I'm going to use this opportunity to swear for the first time in this episode and say that that is utter bullshit.
1: I'll I'll jump on the square (laughs) train with that one. It is bullshit. Get on it.
0: But things were about to change. The 99 World Cup. So important, in fact, that I feel like Everybody still talks about that crew, and everybody knows names from that team.
1: Oh yeah, even even twenty you know one years later. I mean, they still come on and they'll commentate current games. You know, they're definitely heavily involved in the in the sports still, which is great
0: too. So we get to the ninety nine World Cup, and who do we have in our corner? I am going to give you a little rundown of the ladies. So first, Mia Fucking Ham. Mia Hamm. Everybody knows Mia Hamm. Maybe not at this point, but when she retired, she actually had the record for most international goals scored in women's soccer. Highly impressive. Then we have Brandy Chastain, who we spoke about last time because she was the lady who ripped off her shirt, revealing her sports bra, our favorite piece of clothing. Favorite. And she, again, remains one of the most decorated players in the United States women's national team history. Then we have Michelle Akers, who is one of the most decorated players of all time. She was named player of the century by FIFA in 2000. Then we got Brianna Skurry. We had Carla Overbeck. She was the captain of the 99 team. We had Joy Fawcett. We had Christine Lilly. And she actually set an all-time record for the US women's national team for caps. And I didn't really know what a cap was, so I did a lot of Googling. And apparently it's a metaphorical term for a player's appearance in a game at the international level. And it goes all the way back to when in the United Kingdom, apparently they would give a cap, like a literal, like fancy hat. hat. (laughs) Yeah, like a fancy little, you know, olden times hat to every player in an international match of association football. Football. So... It's pretty funny thinking about, like, when they're like, oh, yeah, she got the most caps. It- it's literally like little velvet tasseled hats.
1: <laughs> I mean, where would you keep those, like, up in your
0: garage? They're just all yeah. laying there. <laughs> then we had Julie Fowdy, Kate Sobrero, Tiffany Milbritt, Cindy Parlow, Shannon McMillan, Sarah Whalen, and Tish Venturini. So got a stacked crew and the gods of women's sports smiled down on us that summer. On June 19th, 1999, the United States Women's National Team, oh, I should also mention, one of the most important parts about this World Cup is that it was hosted in the United States.
1: Yeah, so it's the first time that on, like, I feel like American soil, there's so much publicity and marketing and they're filling i mean they're they're filling football stadiums, you know like American football stadiums, thousands oh, yeah. and thousands of people are are getting exposed to the world or to the women's World cup specifically, and I think that definitely is why this is such a historic year for women's soccer
0: yeah, i mean we so we end up playing Denmark in the opening game, and seventy eight thousand nine hundred and seventy two fans. Poured into Giant Stadium. And that was the second largest crowd the Giant Stadium had ever had at the time, second only to a visit from the Pope. So the Pope, and then the Pope. right underneath
1: it is the U.S. women's national team.
0: Yeah, not even the Giants. Like, ha ha ha.
1: Yeah, shout out to, yeah, shout out to the New York <laughs> Giants, man. You can't fill your own stadium.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so not only do we defeat Denmark 3 0. The momentum keeps going. Oh my gosh, we were kicking grass and taking it, yeah, drawing crowds the likes of which women's sports had never seen before. June twenty fourth, we beat Nigeria. Sixty five thousand fans in Chicago. June twenty seventh, we beat North Korea. Up here in our hood, although neither Julia and I are in <laughs> Boston right now, um, yeah. Yeah. but in in Foxborough, where the Pats play, with boom, fifty thousand people. Quarterfinal against Germany, 54,000 people. Semifinals against Brazil on the 4th of July. In Stanford, 73,000 people.
1: That's incredible.
0: Now here we are. July 10th, 1999. We're playing China in the final of the World Cup. There are 90,000 people in attendance. The largest crowd to ever watch a women's soccer game or any women's sporting event at the time. It was also the most watched soccer game in the U.S., including any men's World Cup matches at the time. We had 40 million people watching live on ABC. And after 90 minutes of regulation and two 15-minute overtimes, neither team had scored. So we're 0-0. And what happens next, like Julia explained, penalty kicks. Heart
1: stoppers.
0: Here we are with those five PKs. China gets to shoot first, and Shea Hulian, and I'm so sorry, I'm going to butcher all these names, shot and scores. Carla Overbeck, team captain for the U.S., gets up there, makes her PK. Then we got China's Kui Hian, makes her shot. Joy Fawcett, a defender for the U.S., comes up, makes her shot. Then Liu Ying steps up. And her shot is blocked by Brianna Scurry, meaning that if we make the rest of them, we would win. Christine Lilly, one of the most experienced international players in the world, man or woman at the time for the U.S., boom, makes her shot. Zhang Owening scores for China. And Mia Ham, our girl. Our girl. Mount Rushmore. The sport's all-time leading scorer, had 34 more goals than... Pele.
1: He's the greatest men's soccer player of all time. Like you think of Ronaldo and Messi right now. Well, before them, Pele was just incredible.
0: So Mia Hamm had had 30 more goals at that time when she stepped up to take that PK than Pele. So she makes hers. Then Sun Wen of China makes hers. So now it's all up to Brandy. So if Brandy scored, they would win. Brandi Chastain lines up, takes her shot, and makes it, ripping off her shirt in the purest form of triumph, swinging her jersey around. She's wearing a black sports bra, and it became, like, the very image of, like, female sporting success. Ugh.
1: Iconic. And if you want to go and watch it, again, it's on YouTube, so please Mm -hmm. feel free to to look it up, because it'll give you the chills. I guarantee it.
0: The United States wins, so we win that 1999 World Cup. And it just had a rippling effect of women's soccer in the U.S. Everyone knew the names of the 99 team. One of the awesome things that happened after that World Cup is that a women's professional soccer league in the U.S. was finally formed. So two days before the final match of the 99 World Cup, U.S. Soccer announced its plan to launch a professional women's soccer league. And here we go. Woosa. Woosa. So (laughs) the Women's United Soccer Association was not only the U.S.'s first soccer league, but it was the world's first women's soccer league in which all the players were paid as professionals.
1: Right. Like the other, you know, the other three years when there wasn't an Olympics or a World Cup, you know these people had to not live ordinary lives but you can't imagine lebron james or whatever playing oh basketball gosh. for eight months of the year and then going and working at your local kroger or whatever to make yeah. ends meet which it, it's basically what they were saying it's that yeah great like on this world stage every three four years depending on when the world cup and olympics were mm-hmm. you can you can make some money playing this based off of like sponsorships or whatever it might be. But then the other times, you know, good luck. You're on your own. So it's great that they could have this kind of like stabilizing effect of creating a women's league where the best players could continue to play and perfect their craft. Mm
0: -hmm. So we get WUSA. The first season begins in April of 2001, but by 2003, the league had incurred a loss of a hundred million dollars and it folded, even though that's pennies compared to men's mm-hmm. league.
1: And I think that that gets lost on people because, for example, like the NFL has been around 100 years, NBA 75, and there's just no way that every single year they've made money off of it. But they're always willing to stick it out. And I just don't feel like mm-hmm. for women's sports that has happened slash is happening with those leagues. It's always like, well, you know, you had three Mm -hmm. days to make us a billion dollars and you ended up not doing it. So bye, like you're canceled or whatever. And I think while we discuss these next few kind of retries, I guess, it's it's interesting to think back Mm -hmm. and say, like, well, what if they just continued with the one league instead of trying to restart? So a little preview, but
0: Mm -hmm. and so like Julia said, now we enter a little bit of an uphill battle with some trials and errors with some leagues. So even though in 2004 and 2008 Olympics, we win gold medals and we finished third in the 2007 and the 2003 World Cups, the teams just weren't getting the same amount of height or interest that the 99 World Cup team was getting. So in 2009, they try again and form a new women's soccer league called Women's Professional Soccer. So this starts play in March of 2009 but again like the previous league it folded in 2012 some people attribute it to like a lack of resources invested into the league which is like we we're saying just like a common theme in women's sports like people just aren't willing to make the necessary investments to make things successful and then act surprised when they fail yeah but then we hit another turning point it's another world cup it's 2011 Germany receives the bid to host. And so this is the first time since 1995 that the Women's World Cup had returned to European soil. Not only that, but the German national team were the reigning champs of the previous World Cup. They were expected to be a finalist, if not a champion, of the 2011. And so the opening game of this World Cup sells out all 74,000 seats in Berlin And once again, the spotlight is back on women's soccer. And wow, the caliber of actors on this stage. A couple of names,
1: Alex Morgan, Abby Wambach. And Alex Morgan at this point, was kind of like a baby. So she was following in Abby Wambach's footsteps.
0: Yeah. And so we come out strong again. We defeat North Korea. We defeat Colombia. We get a spot in the quarterfinals. And so we find ourselves in this quarterfinal match against Brazil. And one of the players on Brazil was Marta Vieira da Silva of Brazil. And Marta is almost like Pelé in that she's just Marta.
1: Yeah, she's just, she just goes by Marta. Everyone knows Marta.
0: She was a five-time FIFA World Player of the Year. And she is like such a threat on the field. Just a force to be reckoned with.
1: Yeah, so I recently watched this game again on YouTube. I saw it on Twitter, actually, and then went and watched it on YouTube when they were live streaming it. So basically, this quarterfinal game... Brazil versus the United States. The stadium was sold out. This is knockout round, so whoever loses does go home. So it starts off, and actually Brazil scores an own goal. I can't remember her name. Also, I don't even want to like really
0: shout out her name. Because she also... I don't want to spoil it, but she also messes up Yes, later.
1: she messes up later. So, I feel <laughs> so bad, bad for her. She
0: had a really bad game.
1: But basically, so she scores her own goal. I, it was like within the first minute. So already Brazil's down 1-0 to the United States. And then the game's going along. It's going along. It's going along. After halftime... I can't remember again which United States player got sent off, but United t- States player got sent off with a red card and it was kind of like, I would say, a bullcrap call. I hate throwing referees mm-hmm. under the bus, but I definitely did not yeah. agree with that sentiment. Was it Marta who tied it up? Yes. Yeah, yes. it was Marta because mm-hmm. she's just a beast. So she ties it up 1-1 in regular time. So now we're going to overtime and literally like right off the bat, Marta comes in. Brazil's attacking off the left wing. A cross comes in. Marta, probably six yards out, does this amazing half volley with her left foot and gets a bat- pass. Hope Solo, who was her goalkeeper at the time, so now they're up two one. Mm-hmm. But we still have the remaining time. So the fifteen minutes is up. It's that like mini break in the overtime half. And, uh, earlier a Brazil player got a yellow card because I think she was like injured and they took her off the field and then she came like immediately back on, like nothing had happened, but she sat there rolling around for six minutes, which is like a total staple of the men's (laughs) game. So it's very frustrating to see that. So she's rolling around pretending like her calf hurt or whatever, walks off, then is let back on. So she's given a yellow card. and all this rolling around adds on a couple minutes to overtime even. So now we're in the crunch time. I think it's like the 121st, 122nd minute of extra time after overtime. Mm-hmm. And Megan, I don't know how she saw this. Cause when you're watching it real time, it's just like, she pulled it out of a hat, but she yes. delivers the most yes. beautiful cross of all time. And who's on the receiving end of it. Abby Wambach, who is notorious for her headers. Like she's very tall. She mm-hmm. knows when to jump the ball ends up finding her head and it goes into the back of the net and they the United States team has tied it. So now it's 2-2. Yes! Overtime is over. So now it's into PKs, the heart stoppers. And in, in summation, kind of like what we hinted at earlier, the same <laughs> woman, that poor woman... <laughs> who scored the own goal to let the United States go up 1 0 early? She misses the penalty kick, whereas everybody else, Rapino, Allie Krieger, they both scored um, three. I can't even remember the other three, but it's just incredible. Yeah. And they end up winning the quarterfinal match against Brazil.
0: I would suggest watching it. I've watched like the scene where Megan Rapinoe hits that cross to Abby Wambach and you hear the announcer, like right before to be like, will this go down as the US worst performance at the World Cup? And then like five seconds later is like, can you believe I it? I love that. Can you, you believe it?
1: it? Yeah. The can yeah. you believe It's epic.
0: <laughs> so even if you want to start at like the 90th
1: minute, I would definitely dedicate 30 or so minutes to watching.
0: And so that sends us to the semis with France, and there's all this media coverage, and we defeat France in the semis, and then we're in the finals against Japan, which is a formidable force, Mm -hmm. and we get another overtime set to another round of PKs, but this time we fall to Japan. But even though we lost, the excitement of that game against Brazil, and just like the personalities on the team... Once again, like capture the hearts and minds of sports fans in the United States. And that momentum just starts a rolling. And what happens in the next year? 2012 Olympics. Was this one in London? Yep. It's the London Olympics. Our women are back. We meet Japan in the finals this time, but we are ready in front of a crowd of 80,000. Carly Lloyd scores two goals. For the U.S., leaving us with a 2-1 victory and our fourth Olympic gold medal. The power of these back-to-back events and just like the fact that these women were so inspiring and such enigmatic personalities, in 2013, every home game that the U.S. national women's team had had over 10,000 people in attendance. The New York Times called the national women's team possibly the most universally embraced group of Americans playing team sports. And I just have to agree. Yes,
1: and I think that that's when the U.S. Women's National Team fan club really took a foothold. And mm-hmm. you'll have the same group of people, regardless of whether or not it's Olympics or World Cup, still following these players.
0: Mm-hmm. Back to just the story of the leagues, like you'll remember that the WPS fell in 2012, even with these great performances in the World Cup and the Olympics. But the US Soccer Federation, for <laughs> once having their head screwed on straight, met to discuss <laughs> the future of professional women's soccer because they were like, we can't let women's professional soccer die in the US. Thus, the National Women's Soccer League, the NWSL, which mm-hmm. is still kicking today had its first game in April of 2013. Now there are nine NWSL teams, and I think there's plans for a 10th.
1: Yes. We got Portland, Seattle, Utah, mm-hmm. Houston, Chicago, Orlando, New Jersey, and Washington. And there's- North one. Carolina? Yes, North Carolina. Thank you. So these are now staple teams. And another cool thing is that all the U.S. Women's National Team members all play in this league and no other country can say that like no other Mm -hmm. country's national team all plays for the league that is within that country. So that's really cool too.
0: We have this national women's league that's doing great things and now it's the 2015 world cup. And what do you know? We win it. So a couple miles North, I keep saying of here as if we're both in Boston, but we're not a couple miles North of Boston in the old Canada. The uh, U.S. women's national team did the damn thing. We won beating our nemesis Japan with England and Germany placing third and fourth. We were just like a statted team, meaning not only did Carly Lloyd get MVP, but she also tied with Celia Sasek from Germany for scoring the most goals in that tournament with six goals. And Hope Solo, our girl behind the net or in front of the net, our goalie, (laughs) was awarded Best Goalkeeper. Julia, where were you during the 2015 World Cup? I remember
1: this (laughs) so fondly. It was the summer of 2015. It was around 4th of July weekend. I was going to Northeastern University's Mm -hmm. orientation, and I'd heard that the Women's World Cup final was going to be on. And we were staying in our hotel room, but I really wanted to go to a bar, and we didn't want to go to those, you know, those dumb, you know, mandatory like orientation events. I hate those things. Mm. So my dad and I yeah. walked into McGreevy's, which is considered the oldest American sports bar. I don't know how true that is. <laughs> yeah. Like I definitely put that with an asterisk on it, because I don't know if they can prove that. <laughs> but it's right on Boylston. Great atmosphere. We got there early, so we were able to get a seat. Thank God we did, because the place was just packed with fans. So Watching that Mm -hmm. game with my dad, it was definitely like one of the top five sports moments that I've ever
0: had. Mm -hmm. So after we win that 2015 World Cup, the NWSL announces agreements for its first ever televised game with Fox Sports 1, which is huge moves for the team and also just like women's sports in general. Yes. You know, like we talked about earlier, media coverage is not always there. Yeah, and it's so important because if it's on TV, people will watch. And then 2019, this past summer, whew, despite the fact that we had one of the strongest national teams ever in the history of the United States this past time, people were still saying that it like might not be enough to win because the competition was so fierce amongst all the other national teams and we were reigning champs. And so the pressure was on. But our girls never backed down from a fight. Nope. Winning is in our blood. Winning is a habit. And so through like a thrilling series of matches, made even more exciting by the fact that while the World Cup was going on, all of these players were waging war in the courts for equal pay mm-hmm. with the U.S. Soccer Federation. And so when we like beat the Netherlands 2-0, Winning our fourth title, becoming the second nation after Germany, to have retained the title after winning, I felt like the whole world was cheering.
1: Yeah, because they're representing... The fight for equality. And, and I also think that that's important. They not only did they have the pressure on them to win, but they also had the pressure on mm-hmm. them like just from themselves or to defend their, their championship. But they also had the pressure of the whole world on them to show them what you got and show them who's boss. And so
0: they kind of stuck mm-hmm. it to the man. Like it was a fabulous, fabulous World Cup. Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino tie with Ellen White as top scorers for the tournament, each with six goals. And Megan Rapino got MVP. It was just a great victory on all levels. But this sadly brings us back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that they're still having to fight for equal pay.
1: Yes. And our men's team, they have unequivocally supported the women's team throughout this whole thing. And kind of like the common enemy is the United States soccer Federation. Mm -hmm. And even though again, that this episode just kind of focused on the United States women's team, there are so many other women's teams around the world who are fighting for the same rights or even just yep. basic necessities that they'll need to compete at the highest level. So as mm-hmm. our game grows, I know that they're also supporting the game. So we're going to rise up.
0: Damn straight we're going to rise up. So this concludes you know, some ups and downs of the history of soccer in the United States, but Like Julia said, we're going to rise up. We're going to keep fighting and we're going to keep winning.
1: We're going to keep winning. You know that. And hopefully they'll be able to do the impossible and win the World Cup and then win the Olympics whenever that comes back on. Because I know that they're looking to do that. No team's ever done that. I have Mm -hmm. a good feeling that this team will be the first team to do it.
0: Oh, yeah. If there was a team to do it, it would be these Mm -hmm. ladies. And so from our team here at History of the Sports Bra, We want to wish you a good night.
1: And play hard.
0: Thanks for listening. Check out our website, historyofthesportsbra.com, for episode extras and more content on the wonderful world of women's sports
1: oh my god a bird just flew into the window dead ass a bird no. just flew into the window oh my god,
0: <laughs> oh my god i knew that they scary. were supposed to do that but i didn't think that actually happened <laughs> oh my god i'm
1: like looking at but
0: anyways
1: Chin, wow it scared the shit out of me okay